And then if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and find your way to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms. We're going to jump into Psalm uh, 139 this morning, and we're actually going to walk our way through that, that entire Psalm uh, in the Old Testament. So this morning, uh, last week we finished up our series on idols. Uh, we were taking that through the fall, and then obviously next week we'll jump into all things Christmas. But this Sunday, since we're still connected to Thanksgiving, I, I wanted just to take kind of a standalone Sunday and talk about um, the reasons why we should be thankful to God. And, and, and I think what will come out of this, as you'll see in Psalm 139, there's a lot of things, but it's not, it's not a laundry list of why we should be thankful. But I, I think one of the things you'll see as we kind of walk this passage that's so important is that we have to be thankful for God's presence. And when I say that, we think of God's presence like, okay, I feel God's presence in worship in a certain way, or I see God at work in my life when things are going well. But I think one of the things that you and I don't understand fully is that God is always present. And I say that, and I'm, I'm convinced that probably a good portion of us in this room say that, but we don't really believe it. Because the way that we view God so many times is that God is present when life is good, but when life is bad, he's left the building. Anybody agree? Anybody ever ask the question, God, where did you go? Because things were good, and then everything fell apart. I lost a loved one, or I lost a relationship, or I lost a job. And wait, God, everything's supposed to be good in my life. And now that that's gone, I think you're gone too. And we ask the question, God, where did you go? Why did you leave me? And you and I will see from Psalm 139 this morning as we walk through that, there is never anything in our lives, any of our experiences ever, that God somehow is absent from. And we need to be reminded of that because we can be so grateful that God loves us, that he is involved in every detail of our lives, whether we want him to be or not, which for some, that's not good news, that's bad news, but it really is good news. So this morning, we're going to walk through Psalm 139. So if you have your, your Bibles, I'm going to just, we're going to take kind of a section at a time and start with verses one through six, where kind of the first reality of our gratefulness and why we're thankful is because of God's personal knowledge of us. And listen to what David writes in Psalm 139, the verse six verses. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot contain it. So what is, what is David writing about in terms of God's personal knowledge? There's three things that you and I truly need to understand about God's personal knowledge of us, which is, this is true. In reality, God knows you and I better than we know ourselves. The first thing is, look at verse two. God knows my thoughts. Just, just let's, let's, let's settle in for a minute. God, it says God discerns my thoughts. He actually knows my thoughts. That means that there is never a thought that you've ever had, that you've ever formed, that God doesn't know. Now you're like, oh, stink. <laughs> he knows what I'm thinking? Yeah, he's reading your mind all the time. And this, is, this, is, this shouldn't come as like, oh no, then I really need to, need to start thinking differently because I'm going to somehow hide something from God. Newsflash, you can't do it. You're going to have the thoughts you're going to have. Here's the reality is God is present in every thought that you have, which means God is always listening to the thought process that you are walking through and is never absent from the struggles that you have inside your own head and is always accessible through this thing called prayer through our thoughts. And that's not some kind of like futuristic sci-fi kind of thing, but think about this. If God knows my thoughts, then as I'm thinking, God knows what I'm thinking and God knows the struggles I'm going through, so why not acknowledge that he's actually listening in? Why not acknowledge that he's actually at work in my mind? 
Just think about what that's like, that, that ability for God to know you so well and be so present in your life that every thought that you have, he knows. Let's put it in these terms. What if you knew every thought of the person sitting next to you? You're like, yes, I'm just said, no, thank you. I don't want to know. But just think about it. Every thought that they have, you know. It's true. You would probably know them better than they even know themselves. Because when you know somebody's thoughts, you probably go, oh, I know where this line of thought is going. We've been here before. I know what that's all about. And you know that person. Why? Because you're inside what's going on. And you're inside who they really are. Because you and I really are who we are in here. And in here, a lot of what we do on the outside is just trying to cover for what we don't want people, don't, we don't want people not to know about our lives. But God is so involved in our lives that he actually is inside of our minds and knows what we're thinking. That's how close we are. And that you and I should be grateful for that. Why? Because God is that close to us to know us that well. To know the patterns, to know the struggles, to know the guilt, to know the shame, to know the thought process that leads us towards sin. He knows all of that. He's present in the middle of everything and in all of that. Second thing, look at verse 3 of his personal knowledge of us, is that he knows my days. Verse 3 says, you are acquainted with all my ways. Other translations actually use, use the word days. But think about that. Every moment of every day, past, present, future, God is with you in present. Why is that important? Because you and I don't think he is. We either, we either by commission or omission, we somehow forget or we choose to not acknowledge that God is actually present in every moment of every day in our lives. It's just that we don't realize that he's there or we choose to not acknowledge that he's there because we don't want him butting into our business. We think we can somehow distance ourselves from him, but we can't. Every moment of every day. Now, this is the way that we usually work. In the bad moments, he's not there. In the good moments, he's present. And so it's usually these great moments of life. I feel God's presence. I know he's here. But then you know where we think that God somehow just kind of checks out, and I think it's because we check out, is in the mundane, everyday details of life. That we just kind of live our lives and like, yeah, God's present in church. God's present when I read my Bible. God's present when I pray. Maybe when I'm going through a struggle, I'll turn to God. God's present there. But God's not there when I'm at the gas station. God's not there when I'm going to work. God's not there when I have to make a deadline happen at work. God's not there when I'm at school. Because that's just life. But what this is saying seems to indicate that every single moment of every single day, God is present. So there is no mundane moment in our lives. There is no moment that is absent of the divine in our lives. Think about that. Everything that you do, God is in that moment, in that situation for a purpose because he's, because he's working something out in your life, even when you don't think he's there. See, because you and I will go through, in fact, I just had a conversation with somebody in between services about that, but you can literally, you and I can fall asleep on God. We can go through a long stretch of our day. We can go through a period of time, a week or a month, and you and I don't even acknowledge that God is even there. Because we're just doing our life. We're just living life. And we're not realized he is present all the time. Not to be kind of the big killjoy in the sky looking over your shoulder to see where you're going to mess up. Because he already knows when you're going to mess up. Because he knows before you're going to mess up that you're going to mess up. Because he's God. But he's present. Why? Because he's working out his purpose in our life. Which we'll talk about in a moment. But just think about that. God is present in everything that we do. He's present when you're at the gas station. He's present when you're on the way to church and you're arguing with your spouse and you try to pretend like that didn't happen. God was there. Why? Because God was probably trying to work out something between you and your spouse that you needed to work on and the stress of Sunday morning finally triggered it and God was present. He's always present. Look at verse 4. He actually knows my words. It says, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. Now, now we're like, oh, now God, now you've really gone too far. Really? Before I even speak, you know what I'm going to say? Yeah, that's a good thing. 
Because remember, if he is present every moment and he's already in your mind and he already knows the words you're trying to form and he already knows the thing that you're going to say that you're going to regret before you even say it, he's present. Why is that a good thing? Because God can help you with the thought process that leads to the thing that you're going to regret to say to not say it before you say it. That God is that present. As you are forming the very words on your tongue, God already knows what's going to come out and actually is present to help you to bring out what should come out and to keep in what should stay in. Think about that. He's that close. That means he literally, every word that you say, he's present in. He's there. And he's trying to help you and I. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, everyone should be Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. There's a correlation here. We should what? Listen more than we speak. Why? Because we struggle when we speak. But God is present in the very words. So maybe if we were slower to speak up and more took more time to think, then God is at work in our minds that what comes out is what he wants to come out, even in the most difficult situation when we feel hurt and vulnerable and we want to lash out at people. Somehow God, through the process of being present in our mind, helps us to speak the words that will be the best in that situation. Anybody ever regretted saying something in a fight? Raise your hand, because if not, you're lying. Because we all have. But God is present. He's in my thoughts. He's in our moments. He's in our words. He's present. Why? So that he can help us to live out the life he wants us to live out, which we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. Go ahead and take a look at verses 7 through 12, going on in Psalm 139. So David continues and talks about God's personal presence with me in our lives. So verse 7, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall uh, cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So God is present in a very personal way because he's with us. He's not just present at these moments, but he's actually with us in everything that we walk through, everything that we experience. And the first thing you can see in verse 7 is that he is there when we, even do, when we don't want him to be there, he's there. Verse 7 it says, where shall I flee from your presence? Anybody ever tried to, no, this is again, be honest, ever tried to flee from God's presence? Yeah. Ever want live a certain part of your life or a day or a season where you're like, I really don't want God in part of this one because I know he's not going to approve of this. So what do we do? We flee. We try to flee from his presence. We kind of become like Jonah, and we try to get on a ship going the opposite direction that we know God is leading us in, and we think we can outdistance God. And, and that's the craziness about God. If God is present in our minds, He's present in our, in our days, He's present in our words, and He's present everywhere, you can't outrun God. Think about that for a moment. When you and I distance ourselves, in fact, we have a phrase that is not theologically correct. We say people are far from God. There's nobody that's far from God because there's no place that God isn't. There isn't a God-free zone anywhere. And that means that when we distance ourselves through our behavior and our decisions and our sinfulness, and we think somehow God is not present anymore, either really good news or really bad news, he's still there. He's at the moment when you and I fail the worst. He's present. 
because we haven't run away from him. We haven't outdistanced him. We haven't gotten away to a place that he can't be. Now think about that, because I think our understanding of God and being away from his presence and being far from God is a perception, not a reality. And I can see this in, in the lives of people so many times where you and I go through a season of failure in our life. And so we think that we have walked away from God. We use that terminology. I've walked away from God. See, you think you've walked away from God, but God never walked away from you. In fact, he's following you every single moment. And the process of repentance is when you and I actually turn from the sin that we live in. People have always said this to me, but I, I can't find my way back. You don't have to find your way back with God. The moment you repent and turn from your sin and you turn around, guess who's there? God. He's not over there where you left him because he just kept following you as you were walking away from him. You can't get away from God. And if you and I think about that, think about that God loves me so much and is so present that even when I try to get away from him, I can't get away from him. I can't distance him. And so any moment when you feel far from God, that's not a reality. That's your perception because God is present right in the moment of your failure, your brokenness, or you feel at a distance from God. Because there'll be days where I'm like, God, I don't feel connected to you. I don't feel like you're here. But God is present. God is with us. God is here all the time. Second reality, look at verse 10. And that is that he is there in the middle of nowhere. So he's there when we don't want him necessarily or don't think he's there. But verse 10 says, even there your hand, your hand shall lead, lead me, uh, lead me your right hand shall hold me. And, and in verses 8 through 10, what David's talking about, he's talking about the perception of vertical height and horizontal distance. And he's saying that in all of that, God is presence. In the middle of nowhere, in nothingness, in everything, God is present. And I think there's some times in our lives where we feel like we are in the middle of nowhere. We're not where we used to be, we're not where we want to be, and we're stuck somewhere in the middle of that, and we think that's the place that God doesn't live. And we're saying to God, God, where are you? I'm trying to move forward. I'm trying to advance my life. I'm trying to follow you. But I left what I used to know and what was familiar. And I can't get to what I think you want in my life. And now I'm stuck right in the middle. And you're thinking, where in the world are you, God? Anybody ever want to admit you feel like the way? I'm in no, no man's land and God isn't here. I'm not getting any answers. I'm not hearing anything. I'm not feeling like God's present with me. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Where is God? God is still present there. And God will show up even when you don't realize that he's there. Just because you don't feel him there doesn't mean he's not there. Because there are those moments that God knows your desperation and God knows your need and God hears your prayer and hears your cry and knows that in the middle of nowhere, he will show up so that he will know that he's actually there. Me and a couple of my friends, uh, when we were in high school, we were traveling out from the valley out to, uh, to Malibu to go to a restaurant for, to celebrate someone's birthday. And we got off the 101 on Canaan. We were headed out towards, uh, towards Malibu. And somewhere halfway between PCH and the 101, car breaks down. Now, this is just, just slightly, so you know my age, just pre-cell phone era, okay? So moms and dads had cell phones and like car phones, you know, the big old car phones, you know, that you'd, wow, you're impressive. You had a car. So, so some people had them, but... Most part, we didn't. So when you get stuck, it's called find a payphone, right? And if you've ever driven, you know, Canaan Road, there's sections where there isn't a whole lot out there. And so, of course, we break down where there isn't a whole lot out there. So we're not near a phone, so we've got to get to a phone to call parents. To to somehow, some, someone's got to pick us up. We've got to get a tow truck. And so there's four of us, so we come up with this plan. Two are going to go hunt down a phone to call parents and call a tow truck, and then the two are going to stay. And so... So I was elected to be the two that stay with another friend, and the other two took off, and I'm, I kid you not. So we're waiting for someone to pull over just to be nice, you know, because, like, we're stranded. And finally, 
this van pulls over, and I'm not kidding. It's like some family from the 60s who've been smoking pot. I'm not kidding. And we're like, that's the car that pulls over for us? And I'm looking at my friends, you want to get in that vehicle? Like, hey, they look really nice. I'm like, okay. So off they go. So then there's two of us sitting with this broken down car, and now we're waiting. We don't know how to contact them, but we're just waiting because we're waiting for them to get to a phone, to call a tow truck, and so we waited like an hour and a half. And we're in the middle of nowhere, and it was a warm day, and, and then on top of that, I was at the height of kind of my allergy issues in my life, and so literally I start breaking out with hives from, top, from my, my head to my toes. Literally my face starts, you know, Will Smith and Hitch, it's like that, that, that my face starts blowing up, and I'm like, this is bad. And so finally, the tow truck diver, driver, he shows up, he hooks up the car, we get in the cab, and he takes us, to like, where do you want to go? We're like, well, you got to drop the car off somewhere, so he's going to drop the car. He goes, I'll drop you off at this market. There's this little market in the middle of nowhere in Canaan. Some of you have driven by it. So he drops us off at the market, and we're sitting there, we're like, okay, we don't know who's supposed to pick us up. We don't even know where our friends are. They're lost with the pot family on, in the van somewhere. And we're sitting, literally, we're sitting on this bench in front of this market, like, I don't know what to do. And seriously, we're talking, we're considering walking back to the valley. It's like, we don't know where to go. We don't have any money. I don't have any, I don't have any change to put in, into a, a payphone. And so we're kind of sitting there, and we're like really kind of just sitting there for like 15, 20 minutes. I don't know what to do. And I'm, I kid you not, we're looking across Canaan Road, and all of a sudden, as we're both just kind of like dejected, not knowing what to do, we look up, and this car stops right in the front of the store on the opposite side of the street. It's my friend's parents who... Or she's off somewhere, whatever the car is, or with that family in the van. And she had called her parents, and they had driven out to find us. Well, they stop right across the street from us. We're like, they found us. We were so excited. I mean, what are the odds that they're going to find us? You know, because we didn't have a phone or anything. And so we run across the street, and they're both looking down because they're making a call with their big old cell phone in their car to try to track us down. And it's funny. So we come running up. They're not looking at us. They're not looking at us. All of a sudden, we get right up on the car. We start pounding on the window. They look up, and they're like, what are you guys doing here? We're like, we thought you were here to rescue us. We're like, no, we just happened to stop here looking for our daughter, and we had to make a call on the cell phone, so we stopped right here. What are the odds of that? That they would stop right on Canaan Road, right where we happen to be sitting. I call that God. And in the middle of that, in the middle of like, where am I going to go? What are we going to do? I have no options here. I can't figure out what to do. They stop right where we're at. There are moments in your life where you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. I've had lots of moments like that. And you're like, God, you're not here. And then God let me sh- says, let me show you that I'm here. But I- I've learned with God, he always takes longer than you want him to take. Anybody ever understand that? There's something about patience that God's always trying to work out in our lives. And then the, the third thing that's true about his-, his presence in our life and his presence with us is that he is there in our darkest moments. Verses 11 and 12, David writes about that, that God is always present even in the midst of our darkest moments, even in the midst of our difficulties. Now, this is, this is what we want from God, but this isn't always what we get from God. See, our understanding of God's presence, again, life is good, God is good, God is present. Life is bad, God is gone, he's not a good God anymore. But you and I don't have a category for the fact that God actually may be present even when we suffer. Because God's presence isn't determined by the absence of suffering. God is present in the midst of suffering because there are things in our life that cannot be produced apart from suffering and God will be present in the midst of that. He will let us walk through that. Remember what Jesus said to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember what he said? He said, if there's any other way to accomplish your purpose, let's take that road. And then he finally says what? Not my will, but your will. What was he saying to the Father? He's saying, I will go through suffering because what it will produce in the lives of people. So just because you and I suffer doesn't mean that God is absent. 
It actually means that he's present and he's working in the midst of that. And sometimes all you and I need to know in the midst of suffering and pain and difficulty is that God is actually there. It's even that we would love for him to lift the suffering and take it away, but if we actually can feel his presence and know that he's there, somehow we can make it through the suffering. Why? Because you know we ha- he hasn't left us, even though we feel like he has. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we were in the hospital for three days with Liliana, and she's our little baby that we have right now. She's eight months and had a, a severe infection. And so Kim took days and I took nights. And the first night we were in the hospital, you know, she's, she's been literally poked, I don't know how many times we've lost count. I mean, they're taking blood. She's got IVs. She's got an open wound in her leg from an infection. She's got all these issues she's dealing with. And so we're in the hospital room, and, and the nurse, br- they bring in this, this crib, and they said, well, she can sleep in the crib. And I said, she's eight months old. I said, when you lay her down, the first thing she's going for is the tube running into this. Literally, they put a splint on her arm to guard her from ripping out the, the, the IV. She's going to go for that tube. And if the tube doesn't interest her, she's going to look down at the open wound on her leg. And she's going to go, well, I'm going to have some fun with that. I said, there's, there's no way she is. In fact, she's in a hospital and she's already freaked out. So there's this little kind of makeshift couch in the room that, that they had. And so I pulled some pillows over and a blanket. And, and so I sat her down on the couch. And so the entire night, I didn't sleep at all. But I just laid her on the couch next to me. And I knew one thing's for sure. If she opens her eyes in the middle of the night and she can see me, then she's going to be okay. She'll calm down. I know she will. And sure enough, every, you know, so hour, you know, the hospital's the worst place to get any sleep. You know, they're coming in and they're poking her and they're doing this and everything. Or she's just waking up and she'd wake up and she'd start to kind of, you could see the panic in her eyes. And then she would look at me and I'd just grab her face and I'd start rubbing her head. And I said, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And then I'd take her thumb, which is her favorite thing, and I'd stick it right in her mouth. And then she would just go back to sleep five, six, seven times that night. And the nurses kept coming and going, are you sure you don't want to put her in? I said, no, I don't want to put her in the crib. She's going to stay here with me. Did her pain disappear when she opened her eyes and saw dad sitting there? Nope. Did the IV suddenly disappear out of her arm? Nope. Did her, did her fever disappear simply because I was sitting there? No. But every time she opened her eyes and she looked at me, she would stay calm. See, you and I need to understand that we have a God who loves us so deeply. He will never leave us and never forsake us. He will never walk away from us in the midst of our suffering, although it breaks his heart too because he doesn't want us to suffer. He knows he will be present in our darkest moments of life. Because the Bible's true. He will never leave us and forsake us. He will never walk away from us. And then if you look at verses 13 through 18, we can also be thankful to God for his personal touch on each one of us. So listen to what David goes on and writes about. Verse 13, he says, For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was hidden, not hidden from you, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every day of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you you catch that? I awake and I'm still with you. Even when he's sleeping, even when he has thoughts, God is still present with him. And that's what you and I have to understand. And the first thing that you and I have to understand about his personal touch on us is that he personally created you. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I get that. No, 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 no. You and I don't get this. What does he say? Verse 13, created my inward parts and knit me together. You and I have to understand something. God just didn't get the whole like, 
reproductive process, you know, ball rolling, you know, with Adam and Eve, and like now it's just like clockwork because that's just part of biology and, you know, the sperm and the egg and all that and conception and no, 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 no. God personally invests and crafts together every single human being that has ever walked the planet and who ever walked the planet. God is that invested in our lives. That he was there to form you and I at the moment of conception to bring us into this world. That he was crafting us together. Why is that so significant? Because we are not just the, the random result of biology. You and I are the result of an intention by a creator God who is absolutely creative in everything that he does. And that is the beauty of our creation. That is the beauty of what we experience. That's the beauty of what God does is that God creates a masterpiece of humanity and even down to what we call identical twins aren't exactly identical to every part of who they are. There are variations in every human being, in every culture, in every time period. And this is what's incredible. God has created billions and billions and billions of people. And not two of them are identical. They are all specifically unique to who they are. And if that doesn't amaze you, that means that God took time to make you, you. To make you distinctly different than anybody else. That means that God's placed the highest value on you. You may not like yourself, but get over it. God created you, and he loves what he made. And some of us need to be reminded of that. And if you and I understand that, that's the beauty of looking around and seeing different faces and different people and different personalities and different languages and different cultures and different skin tones. Why? Because God is a creative God who took the time to knit us together uniquely to be who we are. When Kim and I used to study in college, we used to go down to LAX to do that, which is really crazy. It was better to get away from school to study. But one of the reasons we went down there was not just to study because honestly, we love airports. Kim and I love airports, and I'll tell you why. Because there's people there. There's people, especially LAX, there's people from all over the world coming and going. And before 9-11, when you actually could go into the terminal without having a ticket to get on a plane, we used to go, and there was a place in Terminal 2 before they renovated it where you could sit up above the terminal. And there was a couple of, like, couches up there, and we would sit there. Honestly, we didn't get much studying done because all we were doing was people watching. Seriously, for hours, we would just sit there and watch. The terminal would fill every once in a while because a plane would come in or a plane would be boarding. So like all these different people, you hear different languages, you see different people, and it's like we'd see someone coming really unique, like elbow each other, not making fun of them, just saying, hey, look at that person. I wonder where they're from, where they're, where they're going. It's fascinating. Why? Because no two people in that terminal were ever the same. They were uniquely different, and that was on purpose because God created every one of them. God was present when he made you. God was present in the middle of your creation. God was there before you even had a thought in your brain forming you to be who you are. And that's why it's so important for you to live out who you are, not live out who you think you are, who you want to be, but live out who God has created you to be because there's no person like you. Second reality of his touch on us is that he purposed our lives. He has a purpose for us. Verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's in, in NIV. But you and I need to understand something about the way God works. God is the master author who's already written the book of your life. You and I just have yet to discover what the book is. We haven't yet to turn the page and find out what God has. And this is one thing that I am an amazed by God but will never fully understand. God has already written all the days of my life, yet somehow I have the capacity to make choices in my life. I don't know how those two work together. God knows what I'm going to do 10 years from now, and I think I know what I'm going to do because I think I'm going to be making a choice, but somehow in his sovereignty, he's already there. I don't know how that works, but I know one thing for sure. God has already written the script for my life. 
Did you know that God has already written the script for your life? He already knows, he knows the first day and the last day like they're the same. Because he's not bound by time. He understands all of that. And he's already written it out. And you know what he's written out overall for the purpose of all of humanity? There's one primary goal that God has at the end of time. And that is that all humanity would have an opportunity to be reconciled back to him through Jesus. That's God's goal. And that is a huge part of the script he's already written for your life and for the lives of people all around you. But here's the truth. There is a uniqueness about your life that God has created you in such a way that not only does he want you to embrace Jesus so that you can find your way to God, he's uniquely crafted you to be who you are to live out the purpose that he has for you. I need you to catch this. We are masters of just trying to duplicate somebody else's life but don't know how to live our own. We look around and we see what people are doing. We say, oh, I'm going to be like them. I'm going to do what they are doing and try to be just like them and never bother to ask the God of the universe who created you, God, what do you want me to be? What am I supposed to do with my life? What was my life supposed to look like? How have you wired me? Because you and I will aspire to be like somebody else and you just don't have what they have, but you have something else that they don't have and you're still not living out God's script for your life. You're trying to read and live somebody else's book. And the sooner you and I come to understand God has already uniquely wired you and laid out your life, you and I just have to discover it. Because God doesn't look and say, oh, that person's more important. That person makes more money. That person has more influence. That person has more talent. That all comes from who? That comes from us, not from God. And what would it be like to wake up one morning and feel comfortable in your own skin because you know you're living the life that God has written out for you and not trying to be something you're not? That is so freeing. That's the way that God's wired us. That's the way God wants us to live. Because at the end of the day, you and I are not running a race against anybody else but ourselves. We're not competing against any other person to be a better person or a better version of ourselves. We're just supposed to be who God created us to be. That's why you and I can be grateful that God didn't create us to be robots. God didn't create us to be clones. God created us to be unique. And that includes the purpose that he's laid out in our lives. Listen to what Jeremiah, that God says to Jeremiah about his own experience. In, in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, it says, before I formed you in my womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. If God said that to Jeremiah, Jeremiah became the prophet God wanted him to be, then God has said something to you and I about our lives and what he wants us to be, which leads to the next point in verse 17. Believe it or not, God actually knows what he's doing. David says, how vast is the sum of your thoughts? I can't even count them. What is David saying? You're smarter than I am. I can't, I can't even have the thoughts you're having, let alone even count the thoughts that you're having. I can't even come close to that. David's admitting something about his own humanity and about God's divinity, which is God knows everything, and in comparison, you and I know nothing. That means God knows better than we do. Anybody ever question that in your life? Anybody ever try to help God because you think you know just a little bit better? We all do. See, you and I have a script that sometimes comes in conflict with the script that God's already written for our life, and that's when the battle begins because you and I think that God doesn't know what he's doing because he's not working as fast as we want him to. He's not doing it the way we want to. He's not opening the doors we want him to open, and we pray and we pray and we pray. We're like, God, why aren't you doing this? Because you and I are living out a script that we've written for ourselves and didn't bother to ask God what, he's asked, what he wants for our life. What if we change that? And actually believe that as God leads, God knows better than I do what my life's supposed to look like. Let me just tell you a quick journey, and this is, I'm going to 
not that I'm not usually, but I'm going to be pretty vulnerable about my own journey and the way things work and the way my minds work. So I'm going to let you into my mind. I'm going to let you read my mind today, okay? So you've all heard our journey as a family and how we were in Ventura and we moved to Newburgh and then ended up coming back down to Southern California. But let me kind of give you the backstory and what was going on in our lives at that time. So being in Ventura is the place that, uh, in fact, when Kim and I first started ministry, uh, Kim was born and raised there. Her family's there. Courtney and Jordan were both born in Ventura. And so in our minds in ministry, we thought we would love to just stay the, the rest of our life in Ventura. I mean, who doesn't want to live in, Tur- in Ventura, right? Okay, you guys obviously haven't been to Ventura yet. Okay, you should go. It's a cool town, okay? It's, you know when it's hot here, it's usually cooler there, right? So anyway, and they actually have a downtown. I'll get off that. Okay, let's not talk about Ventura. So when God started stirring our hearts about transition in our life, there was this tension inside, like, oh, wait a second. This doesn't fit the script. The script is we're going to live in Ventura forever. And so when that stirring starts coming, you're like, wait a second, God, this doesn't quite work. I'm not quite sure. We really would prefer not to move away from family. We would like to stay here. So all these things are going on internally, but God's stirring us, and we can feel that. So as we're feeling that, that go on, it's like, okay, God, we'll, we'll start opening up the door and see where you want us to go and what you want us to do, hoping that somehow we'd still settle in Ventura, but that wasn't what God desired for us. So as we're trying to figure this out, we dial in on Texas to go plant a church in a northern part of uh, a suburb of Austin called Round Rock. And so we go take a visit there, and Kim and I are already dialed in. I mean, we're like 95% there. We're like, we can see our jobs we're going to get, housing, all these kind of things. And interesting thing in all of this, in this transition, we're trying to, you know, live out the script we think that God wants for us, but it's really for us because the night before we hop on a plane to go to Texas to investigate that, I get a friend from Newburgh, his name's Tim Clark, and says, hey, uh, I'm the pastor, and we were good friends, and he's, he's pastoring in Newburgh, Oregon, and said, hey, we're in transition, just want you to know your name's on the list. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, and I gave him the Christian response, which is, I'll pray about it, which honestly, I didn't pray one bit, <laughs> because I already had where we're going, we're going to Texas. So we dial into Texas, we go to Texas, three days in Austin, love it, but at the same time hate it, because we're like, God, we just don't feel our heart here, but, but we don't, you know, it's the old go until you get a no, you know, heard that before? The problem is if you ignore the no, you don't hear God, you know, so we're like ignoring the no, and we're like, we're just pushing, we're going, and so we get back for three weeks, we're on the internet, we're on phone calls, we're, we're connecting, we're trying to get jobs and housing set up in Round Rock, and we're moving on this, and we're like, we're living out God's will, we're going to Texas, and then finally, after three weeks, independently of even us being in the same room, God speaks to both Kim and I at the same time, and says the same thing. He says, the reason I said no to Texas is because you haven't seriously considered Newburgh. I'm like, God, don't you know it rains all the time up there? So we've been on vacation last summer. It rains. It's crazy up there. But it's beautiful and green. But it rains, right? And in my mind, I'm thinking it's not Ventura. It's not Texas. This doesn't fit. And so finally we said, okay, Lord, we'll, we'll go to Newburgh. And so we went up there. And within 24 hours, God just said, your heart is here. This is where you're going to go. We were in Newburgh for seven years. Something happened in Newburgh. I fell in love with a group of people, and I fell in love with the town, even though I'll be honest with you, I hate the rain. I always will hate the rain. But God was doing things in the church that blew me away. And it wasn't because, oh, Pastor John came to town. No, God was already doing things in that church and lives of people. And the prayer that Kim and I had always had and continue to have is, God, let us just be a part of what you're doing. That's all we want. We don't have to lead it. We definitely don't want credit for it. We just want to be in the middle of what you're doing. And God was doing amazing things, and crazy stuff happened in in that church, and the church became extremely influential in the city, and it kept growing, and all these great things, all because of what God was doing. So after like five to six years, I'm thinking, 
I hate the rain, but I love what God's doing. So I'll put up with the rain and stay here because I want to see God keep doing this. And then God starts stirring again. And I'm like, oh, well, well, wait a second. We did this once in life, all right? I don't want to do this again. And so God says, no, I'm stirring something in you because I'm preparing you for transition. And then Simi Valley opens up, and I get a call. And I'm thinking, Simi Valley, that's Ventura County. That's pretty cool. (laughs) It's sunny there. It's great. But I'll be honest with you, this is what I said. God, I don't know if you can do there what you've done here. I know you're God, but man, this has been sweet. It's been so good. And just so you know, I was very familiar with the history of our church at the time. So I knew what we were walking into. And it's been a few little bit of transition over the last four or five years since I've been here too. Anybody notice that slightly? We've things, a few things have changed over the few last few years, right? But you know, after, over the last about year and a half, amazing stuff is happening in our church. It's amazing. It's God stuff. You know, people are actually getting physically healed in our services and in our community groups. I mean... That's God stuff. We're praying, and you're like the prayer that you prayed a million times, and then God answers it, and you're like, whoa, you're real. Last Sunday was a highlight. We baptized six people, and their testimonies were incredible of what God is doing in their life. If you were here two weeks ago, we played a video about Apollo High School. We're giving gift cards twice a year to Apollo High School, and you think, what's, what's the big deal with a gift card to Subway? It changes the lives of students who can't afford food. A card that actually pays for a family to take their kids to school because they can't afford gas. I mean, if you weren't here, go on the YouTube channel and watch it. We have two students that graduated, and they thanked the church because the gift cards helped them to graduate from high school. That's crazy stuff. We have six laundry loves in our city right now, and you will not believe, we can't tell, all the stories coming out of those laundromats of relationships built over a year or two or three years of people faithfully showing up every month to care for people by paying for their laundry and what has happened in the lives of people. People have been saved. People's lives have been transformed. People in our church have been changed dramatically by encountering people who are broken. And I'm sitting back and going, God, this is amazing. This is that stuff you were doing in Newburgh. You're doing it again. And God says, remember when you said, I don't know if you can do this there like you did it here? And it was one of those moments again where I said to God, you truly do know what you're doing. And by the way, someone asked me in between services, there's no stirring. I don't feel like we're going anywhere. And I'll just tell you the good thing, the good things that are happening in this church are not my doing. They're God's doing. And you and I need to understand that. God is not about one person or a leader. God is about the church. And the Spirit of God lives in all of us and is at work in us through our lives. And so, so it's exciting to realize that God actually knows what he's doing. So if God ever tells you to go where you don't want to go, go. Because he knows what he's doing. Then the final, the final thing is this. Look at verses 19 through 24. And that is that we are grateful and thankful to God for his personal work in us. So David goes on. He kind of takes a pretty hard turn here. He says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. That's slightly a change. And he goes on, and he says this. He says, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. Wow. I count them my enemies. And listen to the change again, verses 23 and 24. Then David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Most of us are familiar with those two verses, but you and I, we lack the context of the previous verses that set up what David is saying. 
David is saying to God how passionate he feels about the enemies of God, people who are against God, and how evil they are and how he feels about them. But then David turns it on himself. And he says to God, if there's anything in me like that, anything in me like that that would be hateful towards you or an enemy of you, if there's anything in me like that, would you search me and find that in me so it is not a part of who I am? And this is probably one of the most vulnerable prayers in all of Scripture when David says, search me. You ever ask God to search you before? Guess what? He will. And he'll find things. That is scary because what David is saying is, I'm going to open myself completely. Because when we get to the end of the psalm, what David's actually saying is, I know you're in my mind. I know you're in my moments. I know that you're in my words. I know that you're present in the darkest moments. You're there even when I don't want you to be there. You're there all the time. Therefore, why don't you just go ahead and search my heart? Because you're already present in me. Why don't you just show me what doesn't belong in me? And the culmination of this psalm is what you and I need to grasp in all of what we just talked about today. The goal of this psalm and the goal of what God is getting at, the reason that he's so present, is he wants this thing called intimacy. He wants to relate to us without any restrictions and without any barriers. That's what God desires. That's why God sent his son into the world to die, to remove the barriers, which is sin in our life, so that we could be reunited and connected with him again. There's a beautiful verse, and it's always put in the context of marriage, but it applies outside of that. It's in Genesis chapter 2. When you get to the end of Genesis chapter 2, you get to 23, 24, and 25, and God talks about this connection between a man and a woman, but he says something of Adam and Eve that is not just for a married couple. It's what God desires for humanity. It says this of Adam and Eve. This is before, before sin enters the equation. It says that Adam and Eve were naked and they had no shame. What does that mean? In fact, when you read a pastor like that, you're like, ooh, wow, we're talking about nudity in church. That's a little awkward, Pastor John. That's why we all get weird on it. You know why? Because we're afraid of intimacy. See, why, why could Adam and Eve experience that kind of intimacy? Because they had no clothes on, not just because they were naive to the fact that they might not need them, but they didn't need them. You know Why? Because they had nothing to hide. They had nothing to be afraid of. They had nothing to be embarrassed of. They had no shame, which means there was no barriers between them. They didn't have to keep anything from each other, so there was no physical embarrassment because there was no emotional embarrassment, and that applies to God. God created you and I in a perfect state, and then sin enters the equation. Why? Because God desires to have intimacy with you, which means you and I are fully known by God which we get that from Psalm 139. He knows everything so that we can fully know him. That's what God wants. Can you imagine the God of the universe who you and I in our sin have turned our back on and walked away says, I'm going to allow my son to come and die for your sin so that you can be fully known again and fully know me. That's good news. That God loves us so much that he has done everything to make it possible for us to relate to him with no shame, with no secrets, with nothing to hide. That's what he's after. That's why he pursues. That's why he's present. That's why he's always there, even when we don't want him to be, because he wants us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me. We're going to close with a couple songs. But I want you and I to capture... You know, so many times when it comes to Thanksgiving, you know, you, you do the, the typical, how, what are the things I need to be thankful for? And we usually will say we're thankful for our family or for provision and our jobs or our house and things. And those are great things. But I think so many times what ends up being on our kind of our gratitude list are the things that God has done for us, which are not bad things. 
But you know what ultimately that all leads back to? Is God himself. I can be grateful for all the things that God does for me, and they're wonderful. But at the end of the day, I know what God is after. God is not after trying to always provide for me and meet my needs, although God will do that. God's after me because he wants intimacy with me. He wants to be in relationship with me. That's, what he, that's why he created me. And that's what all of eternity is going to be focused on, is what me being in a face-to-face without any barrier relationship with the God of the universe. And that doesn't start when I die. That starts when I come to life and know Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, would you just close your eyes as we prepare to, to close with a couple songs that, that today I, I'm, I'm going to pray in a moment, but one of the things I really feel I, I really want to pray about is you need to hear the truth of Psalm 139 today and that, it, that God is present in every aspect of our lives. And that is a good thing, not a bad thing. Because some today you will feel this sense of, oh man, I know. God knows what I've been doing. God is present, man. If God, God's there at that moment where I've sinned and I violated and I've done something wrong and I knew it was wrong and I knew it was sinful and he was there and so you're feeling a sense of shame. The good news is that God was there when you sinned. God knew the thoughts that led to that. He knew the words that happened in the moment. But he's made a way that even in that moment that this brokenness and the sin that you've experienced, he's now taken from you And Jesus has put it on himself on the cross so that you can be right again. That comes through confession and repentance. Confession states what already God knows to be and says to be true about our lives. And repentance is that one step in the opposite direction of the wrong way back to the way that reconnects with God. So if you're here today and you are feeling that sense of like, wow, God is in my space, God, God will hound you God will pursue you, not because he's a God that wants to point out all that is wrong in you, but because he wants to redeem all that is broken in you and bring forgiveness to bear so that you can be in a relationship where you can wake up in the morning and you can walk through your day knowing that God is with you and experiencing no separation, no distance, no shame, no guilt, no condemnation because God is present in So Jesus, would you come now and would you surround us with your presence, with your love, with your grace, with your mercy, and let us experience, Lord, what your desire is today, that we would have a relationship with you, that you would fully know us and that we would fully know you so that, Lord, that we know what it is to be in your presence and feel the fullness of your love in our life. We thank you, Jesus, in your name, Lord.